Welcome to Second Self, the podcast about the self we inherit and the one we choose to create over a lifetime. In this series, I'll be having conversations with interesting people about the important ideas they've adopted and the ones they've moved away from through their lives. Though we live in an increasingly polarised landscape and have all felt the pressure to pick a side on issues and dig our heels in, Second Self is about intellectual curiosity, constructing your own individual identity and, when you need to, changing your mind. Today's guest is author, artist and creator of the hugely successful The Blind Boy podcast, Blind Boy Book Club. We talk about the town we both grew up in, mental health, creating art and the challenges and freedom of building an authentic self while wearing a bag on your head. Hey, how are you doing? I'm fantastic. I'm very good. Good. Uh, Greetings. Yeah, sure. I'm here in London and you are at home in Limerick. I am indeed, yeah. How are things at home? How's it going? Um, I mean, it's grand. I might as well be in London because there's lockdown, so I can't really, I can't really leave. But I think Limerick, Limerick is sorting its shit out. They're getting some uh, tables and chairs in the middle of town and stuff like that. (laughs) That's, that's the news from Limerick. There, There might be, there might be some tables and chairs and they're thinking of putting a few sheds places. And that's the extent, that's the extent of, 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 uh, Limerick's development. Yeah, I, I actually, Limerick is one of the, I think Limerick is like, is very philosophically and conceptually interesting as a place. But I like yes. the fact that um, you obviously have loads of thoughts on Limerick and in some ways you are uh, bag and all a face, a face yeah. of Limerick representation of it. And you have been mm-hmm. kind of through your career. Um, so maybe that's a good place to start. But I, I was I was kind of curious about whether you want to or not, I think for a long time, you've been the Limerick guy. Yeah. Um, and I remember like 12, 13 years ago being in the car with my mom, with Joe Duffy on. And yeah. you were on it, basically defending uh, work that you guys had done. Yeah. Um, and, and there was a guy, as as generally Joe Duffy listeners will do, calling in uh, in his dotage absolutely enraged and he's like you're a parody you're a parody and he went yeah "Yeah, exactly that's exactly it (laughs) yeah Um, so I was just wondering like obviously the work you've done over the years has changed because you've changed and you've got older and all that but was there a bit of like a Dave Chappelle moment with that you know where he was making the Chappelle show and he stopped because he realized that even though he was making good stuff for the in-group to laugh good humoredly at oh yeah it was also appealing to people on the outside who were laughing at and not laughing with. To, to an extent, to an extent. I get to talk to you about John Baudrillard now. Um, because <laughs> the, oh, there's the train. There's the London train. I can hear yeah, it. We'll, we'll have to, we'll edit it out that's, to no, the best that's, that's of our ability. A, oh, fuck it. That's a very pleasing rumble. I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> mind. If I was listening to a podcast and that's the noise that came on, I'd be like, that's nice. It gives me a sense of place. It's the car alarms you don't want. Car alarm. No one's fucking with a car alarm. Or the worst of all is, uh, you know, when a fire alarm's battery is about to go. Oh, just, yeah. 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 I, I had that in a podcast once and there's <laughs> nothing. I couldn't do anything about it. So mid podcast, I had to hit it off my ceiling with a Harley. And then the battery exploded. <laughs> the battery. Got, no, do you know what happened? I'm going to get to your question afterwards. But I was, yeah, I was recording my podcast and the, the fire alarm was giving off that beep. And I'm like, Everyone knows this beep. And because this beep is so ubiquitous, it's changed my battery, changed my battery. I'm like, I can't get rid of it. So I hit it off with a Harley. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't have a ladder to access it. So I hit it off with a Harley, right? And I'm like, OK, grand, I'll deal with it later. I need to go back and record my podcast in my studio. But there was no one in the house. And then as I'm recording the podcast, this almighty bang happens. So then I start freaking out because I'm like, I'm alone in the fucking house. What just happened? So I had to go outside and, and realise that the battery had exploded from the thing. And I ended up actually making a podcast around it because I thought, I entertained the idea that there might be a poltergeist in my house. <laughs> <laughs> back, to, back to your question about, about Limerick. So, and, and I, I, this is something, I, when you're that Joe Duffy call that you're speaking about, this is something that I said on that call, which is like Limerick has an image problem. It's getting better now. 
But 10 years ago, Limerick had a very, very bad image problem. You'll know this. You're from Limerick. People think it's an exceptionally violent, dangerous place. And it's Mm. not. It's just simply not. That's just, for some reason, Limerick has become the place in Ireland that that you say, oh, there's the dangerous place. And it really sticks. And... When you say Limerick outside of Limerick, unfortunately, that's what most people will say. They'll say Stab City or they'll say you're not scared there. And it's like, no. So when we started the Rubber Bandits thing, that would have been 2008, 2009, at a time when Limerick was getting particularly bad press because there was, a, there was an issue with criminals, but you're talking about 100 people. It's about 100 mm-hmm. people in, this, in a city of 100,000. There was an issue with criminals similar to what would be happening in like Drada now. And the media blew it up. And I remember going to the, sh- living in Limerick, going to the shop and like seeing headlines in the newspaper that are like everybody in Limerick living in fear, whole city in terror. And I came to realise that there's two Limericks. There's the Limerick you actually live in. And then there's the Limerick that is portrayed in the media. And I think at the time I was getting into John Baudrillard's theory of uh, simulacra and simulacrum. (laughs) And I was like, ah, how the media portrays Limerick is a hyper real simulacrum. It's not real. It's not the actual Limerick, but it's a copy of Limerick. And that's what people outside of Limerick experience. So then I started to say, why don't we as artists try and adopt some of the negative perception of Limerick, but then turn it on its head using surrealism. Mm. So that's kind of what we were doing. But then when it got big with Horse Outside, you're kind of going, do, do some of these people get this? Or are they yeah. just laughing at Limerick? And I didn't like that one bit. And as, when Horse Outside happened and it got as big as it did, I quickly became unhappy and tried to, I began trying to start losing fans, basically, by <laughs> creating work that they wouldn't like because I didn't like the the type of people that were coming to our gigs. They they weren't laughing at the jokes as we intended. They were they were just a shower of arseholes. They were starting fights in the audience. They were, you know what? I tell you what they are now. They were twenty then. Now they're angry men on Facebook who are racist. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's, you know, yeah. that's who was turning up to our gigs. Just, just uh, disagreeable people who would pay money to come to our gigs to throw things at us. Very odd. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an interesting public service. But you're, yeah, I, I, that's, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear you say that because I obviously, I don't think I sound like I'm from, I'm from Limerick really. And that's a, mm-hmm. a very deliberate situation that my mother brought about. Um, we're not allowed to have accents. We're not allowed. That's it, yeah. To, like, people are always talking about my fucking accent. Mm. And I have a, like, I have a neutral enough Limerick City accent. If I was from Cork, no one would give a fuck. People from Cork are allowed, if you're from Cork City, you're allowed to have a Cork City accent. In the media, whatever. If you're from Limerick, you're not allowed to have a Limerick accent. You're expected to change it. Yeah, there's no, you don't turn the news on ever and hear a Limerick accent or, uh, you know, see it represented. Um, but there are really. Limerick people on media, but they don't sound like they're from fucking Limerick. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they sound like me, to be honest. Yeah. So, you know, I, I completely understand I understand that. But that's interesting, too, because my, my mother's parents were both Irish mm-hmm. and they went to London and came back with her and her siblings when she was 13. And she had this... Uh, I think she was bullied terribly for her English mm-hmm. accent and kind of made to feel like oh, an outsider yeah. all the time. So she had this weird obsession with the idea that my brother and I uh, would be able to live somewhere else and not, you know, in a sense, you know, the, t- the awful thing is, I think, would be able to pass for middle class. That's what it was yeah. that we would be able to go out and not be burdened by where we grew up Um which obviously massively coloured and distorted my idea about Limerick and my feelings about mm-hmm. it as a place, which have changed a lot um, since I left and grew up a bit and, and had a sense of what the world outside it is like. Um, do, do you find, uh, do you think people, when you say, so when you meet an Irish person and you're over in London, whatever, and they go, where are you from? And you say Limerick, do you still find people knee jerk go to something negative or is, is that improving? I think it's improving a bit, but uh, 
for the most part, I think when people when people hear it, uh, if they're not from Limerick and they haven't been there, the one thing they remember is is news stories from 10 years ago or 15 yeah. years ago. And that's yeah. all they've got in their head. And that's what people do when you meet new people, right? They You start saying something and in an attempt to connect with each other, mm-hmm. you're like, here's the one thing I know about this thing you brought up. So I'm going to serve it to you now and then mm-hmm. we can talk about it. It's all I've got. Um, I did some investigating recently with, uh, you know, how did this happen with Limerick specifically? Mm. And... It's interesting, if you go into the newspapers, you can, you can still kind of see a negativity about Limerick going back to nearly the Victorian era because faction fights were a huge part of, of Munster culture specifically. Um, but then in the 1970s, I think it was 1977, out in Shannon Airport, there was Libyan, there was Libyan Air Force pilots, right? So, so Shannon Airport used to have Aeroflot from Russia out there and it used to have some Libyan airline too. So there was a lot of Libyan pilots training in Shannon Airport. And what happened is in 1979 or 78, one of these pilots went into Limerick City, had a night out. I think what happened is he started speaking to the wrong person's girlfriend and he got stabbed into the eye with a screwdriver and died. Wow. And violence like that wasn't really a thing in Ireland in the late 70s, especially something as horrific and the spectacle of a screwdriver into the skull and that just it stayed in the news for a while but then what happened was a kind of a a whispers emerged around that story and then what that got turned into the IRA were training Libyan uh, like PLO and stuff in Limerick and one of them got stabbed in Limerick City so this meme emerged in popular culture of even like the PLO, who the IRA are training, can't survive Limerick. And it just became popular to start saying Stab City. And it just stuck as a meme. And it's never really challenged when people say it. And it really does have a negative impact. It really, really does. There, there's, like, Jesus, you know when you go abroad, you know, so do you know if you're going staying somewhere in Spain or Portugal, you'll generally always look on the TripAdvisor for where your hotel is to get an idea of is the area where my hotel is, is it safe? Can I go out at night time? That's a normal thing that we all do. I did it for Limerick once for the laugh and I've never seen anything as bad in my life. I simply would not go to Limerick. And I know from reading these, uh, the TripAdvisor reviews, it's not people who've directly experienced violence. It's people who've heard things and heard things and heard things. And you look at the reviews and it's like, don't go out at night time. This place is called Stab City. There's a high chance of getting stabbed. But if I didn't know, I'm just not going to Limerick. If I was from Portugal and I'm doing a tour of Ireland, I'm just going to go, I'm not going there. Why would I do that? Similarly, if I, if I heard that about a village in Spain, I'm not going to the village in Spain where the, it's named after knives. <laughs> do you know what I mean? No, of course not. Of course not. Yeah, but it's, I think it's funny as well that that kind of, as you say, like, that's so inaccurate and also kind of like when I being a young person in Limerick growing up, mm-hmm. it felt to me like because because it's never been particularly maybe because there's some shame around that reputation and a kind of a, an uncertainty about how to kind of address it in an administrative uh, mm-hmm. way to improve it. But it always felt like it was this constantly slowing down place, you know, so like the idea of a violent incident in itself would have been, you know, when I was like 18 would have been pretty exciting. It'd be like, well, something's, something's happening (laughs) when you're just, when I was kind of, you know, like growing up, it felt Mm -hmm. like Limerick needed, it just needed so much of a kick. It needed, you know, investment, Mm -hmm. it needed people, it needed uh, pedestrianisation. It just needed a lot. And the idea that, so it's this chaotic dystopia full of violent activity was really hilarious if you actually live there. Yeah. Because it's like, it's it's actually fairly boring. An, inter- <laughs> an, an interesting thing too with Limerick is, and this is a weird feeling, to have grown up somewhere that was, is better off the word, not better off, the the Limerick, when I grew up, was a, had a hell of a lot more activity than it does now. So I grew up somewhere. I'm not going to describe it as bustling, but when you went into town, there was people there. There was a yeah. sense of life. And then the recession happened in 2010 and that disappeared. But you kind of think it'll be fine. It'll come back. But it never did. 
And now I'm living in this place that is 50% less than what it was when I grew up, which is really strange. I'm coming to accept that, fuck, I just live in, uh, like, like I, I, I'd say someone in like somewhere like Detroit would feel the same thing, where yeah. a lot of jobs go and you go, this is fine, the, you know, give it 10 years. And then it's like, no, I think permanent damage has been done. Like Limerick City Centre, like during the pandemic, all these people up in Dublin, they were sharing photographs of Grafton Street and stuff during the pandemic. And there's very few people there. And Dublin people were going, wow, this is terrifying. It's eerie. And I'm like, that's Limerick on on a Saturday in December when it's supposed to be Christmas shopping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's uh, my brother moved home back uh, with his wife. They're both from Limerick, obviously, uh, from London. Um to have their family and, you know, open a business and stuff. But so many people were like, what what are you, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Like, and they're like, cause we want to go home. We want to, you know, invest in the city. We want to raise a family there. But it it was considered an act of insanity by a lot of people. It's a different home to the one that he left. For sure. Like, and the thing is for me is the other thing about being from Limerick is you have to talk Limerick up. But when you're from Limerick, you're a, you're consistently in defense of Limerick. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, you 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 always have to go, and we, what we say is that it's the people, the people, the people. But then I get like I get fucking embarrassed sometimes because there's a small little amount of tourism that happens in Limerick because of my podcast, right? You get people from America or whatever just going, I need to visit this Limerick place where Blind Boy is from. I listen to his podcast all the time. I want to go to the bars he talks about. So I'd always end up getting texts from my buddy who runs a bar called Pharmacia and he's like, oh, there's people in from Denmark tonight. There's people in from... And I kind of go, fuck, that's nice that they've made a little pilgrimage, but now I'm kind of embarrassed because it's like, well, you better go to bed at 10 because there's nothing. (laughs) There's nothing. You know? Yeah. Do you like industrial estates? (laughs) In some ways too, it's, it's... I feel in some ways when you move out of a place, you lose some of your right to criticise it in the way that if you stayed, you know, because you're kind of paying your dues by being oh, there. Yeah, but yeah. I hear things that like the new slogan for the city that they brought in a year, Embrace year ago. Embrace the yeah, edge, was this? It was, it's, I think it's Limerick, uh, European edge, Atlantic embrace. And not only is that the longest slogan ever and pseudo-sexual in its wording, so it's... yeah. And the edge, I think Embrace the Edge is Limerick trying to identify, trying to um, confront the fact that knives are, are a part of the identity. Oh my God. They hired Sachi and Sachi to do that, you know, it was like 10 million. I know, it's so depressing. And the thing is as well, it's like, literally, it's Limerick itself deciding that the essence of Limerick is what it's adjacent to. <laughs> We're in between America and Europe. That's what it is. The best thing about us is geography. And it's like the uncool kid in school trying to hang around with the popular uh, group to try and get uh, coolness by osmosis. A bit. And I remember criticising the, the in, in good humour, because obviously I, I would love people to appreciate Limerick and go there more and spend yeah. their money. But I, criti- I made a joke on social media about the, about the slogan and I got this incredibly long message from a, a, a person who works in PR for Limerick to explain to me what it means and I was like no I don't fail to understand what it means yeah. that's not the problem here it's that it's shite yeah. and like the best thing about where I was born and grew up is not that it, you, you can get a flight to America from there like that's not <laughs> what are you talking about yeah and did you see the fucking last year when they were trying to respond to the coronavirus thing um, instead of putting tables and chairs for people to actually sit down and eat, they they hung up giant cutlery, but but th- <laughs> th- they couldn't put a knife there. They had to do spoons and forks, and they couldn't hang any giant knives. <laughs> and it's like, come to Limerick. There's no seats, and you can eat your food with a fork and a spoon. <laughs> oh, but it's 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 a tough one to defend sometimes. Like I've no problem defending Limerick by saying. This is not a violent place. That's bullshit. It's a lovely place, but it is, uh, is, is disadvantaged the word. I mean, disadvantage is such a strong word. Limerick has issues. Limerick has issues. And, and because of those issues, there's not a lot going on here. So you're, you're, you're kind of saying to people, Limerick is grand. I love Limerick. I love Limerick. And then when they, they finally come here, you're a bit like, 
well, there's a fence and over there, there's a shop. Like, I've I, I done it before. Like, I said, there's a shopping centre there. And then someone asked me what was special about the shopping centre. And I said to him, for years, there was a, uh, a crow on top of that shopping centre and he used to rob fags out of people's mouths. <laughs> Arthur's key. That's the only thing I could say about it. Because it's shit. I didn't know about that crow. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's a, there was a crow. He's gone now, but he was there for about 10 years. And I used to love just watching him. He'd come down and, and try and steal cigarettes out of people's mouths and it would work. Actually, it was, probably, it was probably a female crow. So she would come down and steal the cigarettes. And I was always fascinated by this going, what the fuck? Is this crow addicted to cigarettes? And then, of course, I had to look it up and it turns out that crows will steal lit cigarettes, put them out and then line their nests with them because it keeps out parasites. God, they're clever. They're Jeez. very, they're exceptional, yeah. So then I got, so then I have to try to start saying to people that like the crows are more clever in Limerick. That's one thing we have going for ourselves. <laughs> but what I do say to people is what's special about Limerick? For me, it's, um, it's, there's a sense of humour in Limerick. There's, there's, we have a tolerance for silliness within Limerick culture that it, it's just Limerick people are a lot of fun and they're very funny. And we're deadpan in how we'd speak. Like a Cork person sounds like a Limerick person that's after receiving a bit of good news. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But yeah. we have a lovely deadpan which lends itself to kind of ironic humour, ironic uh, humour, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, uh, like, I think it comes, it comes from a place of historic disappointment <laughs> where yeah. you just, you find humour in negativity and you're not overly optimistic, but you can still find the fun in things. <laughs> but even like, we have the Curse of St. Munchen. You, you know, you know about the Curse of St. Munchen, obviously, do you? I think so. I mean, uh, well, let me, tell me in case I don't. So, St. Munchen, uh, Built a ch- tried to build a church. I think I know where it is. I think it's at the back of North Circular Road somewhere near Villiers. But yes, Saint, I've, I've seen it. Yeah, there's, a, tiny, there's a little... Yeah, yeah. And it's hidden in an estate and it's like, wow, this is like from the fucking 11th or 12th century. This is amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. And I love it. But that apparently is the original St. Munchen's church. And the story goes that St. Munchen himself was building it and he kept asking the people of Limerick, any chance you'd give me a hand here building this church? And the people of Limerick were like, fuck off, I'm not building a church. <laughs> the fuck am I building a church? Are you going to pay me? So St. Munchen was like, well, fuck ye anyway, Limerick. I'm going to build the church myself, but I'm putting a curse on ye. No person from Limerick or no person from Limerick will ever be successful. <laughs> and it's just kind of interesting that like, it's obviously not true, but collectively as a, as a culture, we had to invent a curse for why everything is so shit all the time, <laughs> consistently. Like, I tell you one thing, you know, the way we were trying to get the European uh, city of culture thing uh, for 2020 Mm -hmm. and Galway got it instead. And I was very disappointed because Galway, Galway deserve it because Galway is an amazing city full of culture and full of art. But Galway don't need it. Limerick genuinely needed it because the thing with those European city culture things, it's not a prize for being classic culture. It's a way to inject 25 million quid into a city and change it. So I was annoyed that Galway got it. But can you fucking imagine if we got it and then coronavirus happened? Yeah, I mean... Because Gal- Galway didn't... Nothing happened with that festival. It, it was all online. So, so city of culture was wasted for Galway. And that's fine. They can, they can handle that. But if Limerick actually won and then a pandemic happens, it, it would ruin us for two generations because we'd just go, <laughs> oh, the curse of St. Munchen's actually real. We finally got something and a fucking pandemic stops it. I guess this is real. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, I suppose, I think one of the fundamental problems, uh, if, if, if a place can have kind of like a consciousness or a mentality, is that Limerick doesn't believe in itself. So I suppose the mm-hmm. curse is quite a nice, uh, a nice uh, external thing to point to. But yeah, that is, that is pretty, pretty grim, but also uh, funny inexplicably. But yeah. <laughs> Glasgow is similar. Um, there's a lot of similarities there. Glasgow has, I think it's called Glasgow Syndrome, which is, it's a high rate of unemployment. It's people die younger than they should for, for a modern city. And people can't understand what's going on with Glasgow here. And, and, and a sociologist stepped forward and said that it could be as a result of 
a negative attitude that simply you have when you live in Glasgow, a collective negative attitude. And Limerick, I, I think, sometimes can be a bit like that. We, we, like, we literally don't hope for anything. <laughs> you don't. You're kind of, you, you're, like, even now when they announced, like, they announced some very positive plans recently, which is that they're going to start, there's loads of laneways in Limerick, but they're full of cars. Now they're going to use them for outdoor dining. They're going to cover them. Oh, it looks really exciting. But I'm not thinking about how are they going to do it. I'm kind of going, how are they going to fuck it up? You know, that's where my confidence is. In what way are they going to fuck it up and how are they going to surprise me with it? Yeah. So, um, I mean, w- on the basis of all that, uh, why are you still there? Because um, <laughs> it's affordable and it's my home. And it, every need that I have is met here, you know? Yeah. Like, I, 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 I don't want much. Like, to be honest as well, I don't think I'd have my career if I didn't stay in Limerick because the thing is, like 2012, 2013, 2014, when I was starting off, we'd say, in the professional industry, I really should have been living in London or Dublin. I really should have because that's the land of where opportunities happen. But if I'd have done that, I'd have had to get a nine-to-five job. And then it's like, how do I work a nine-to-five job in London or in Dublin? And then at the same time, have the massive amount of... Because the thing is, with my job as an artist, I need to be able to fail all the time. I need to have this huge space for trying things out all the time. And if I was working a nine-to-five, I wouldn't be able to do it. But because Limerick was so cheap, I was able to earn hardly any money and live here and be a full-time artist. But that's why I stayed in Limerick. And I have my career now because of that, if you get me. Absolutely. It's a weird little catch-22 because I could have lived in London and come across this amazing opportunity that comes out of the blue. But at the same time then as well, it's like, probably not. It would have been too big a risk. It wasn't a risk staying in Limerick. Yeah. Um, I, it kind of, I, I wanted to ask you about, about masks, but not in the usual way. I know you've been asked yeah. probably a billion insufferable questions about masks. So I was kind of thinking about... Um, Freud, who I have a lot of personal issues with and a lot of resentment f- toward for, I yeah. spent a lot of years reading him and God, he's a pain in the arse and I really yes. don't like him. But so, you know, this idea that and people like Franz Fanon as well, who did wrote about mm-hmm. it in relation to race, but the idea that everyone has a mask imposed upon them. And uh, in order to kind of function in society, you have to construct a persona and wear it and go around in that way. Yeah. Um, so obviously you have that because everyone has that. But then you've constructed another persona on top of that. And I was just curious about kind of because, as you say, as an artist, you've you have tried and uh sort of ventured into loads of different areas and done yeah. different things and reserve this kind of unflinching right to change if you feel like it, even if people get attached to one iteration yeah. of what you present yourself as. What is it like to have to kind of change underneath like two masks, let alone one? Um, well, it's, it's a sl- like, it's a slow process. So when I started off with the rubber bandits, that was really, really silly. That was comedy it was surreal it was silly and I rarely said anything serious yeah I was still dealing with satirical issues and caring about issues but I wasn't doing them uh in in a in in, in an explicit way it was more subtext Mm -hmm. and then around about 2014 2015 I started to speak about more serious things in a non-ironic way it's like literally what I'm saying you can take it at face value and there was a lot of resistance to it. But yeah. I kind of just said, fuck it, I'm going to try it at least. And I still get resistance to it. But I had confidence in what I was saying, in particular around, around mental health. Um, another unfortunate thing about Limerick is Limerick's got the highest suicide rate in Ireland. It certainly did 2014, 2015. And I was losing a lot of people I knew. So I started using Facebook or... Because I had this huge audience on Facebook. I started using social media to just... Talk about simple concepts around cognitive psychology, CBT and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. To Just to, to normalise speaking about mental health and to show that there's tools there. there there's a lot of really simple tools out here with psychology that they're not going to solve all your problems. 
But if you understand concepts like CBT, they'll certainly improve your life. They, they will alleviate some of the suffering. So I started doing that and people got you. People just got around to it. Now, like with my podcast, he's I could be speaking about anything. I could be speaking about psychology, politics, whatever the fuck. People just go with it. But it's an interesting thing there you're saying with the, the mask. Like, I, I literally wear a plastic bag on my head. <laughs> and so recently my publisher, so I write books and the books are, are short stories. They're like, they're serious fiction. They're mad, but you can still have, have fiction and literature and it being mad. And one of the issues that I sometimes face with critics is not being taken seriously as a writer because I have a plastic bag on my head, especially over in the UK. So my publisher was like, when we do your next book, do you think maybe you could, instead of wearing a plastic bag, you change it to a more formal looking mask? Which is just fucking ridiculous, you know what I mean? Because I'm still <laughs> yeah. covering my fucking face. Yeah. And then I said to him, I don't know why people would take issue with my mask, because if you look at writers in, in particularly... Look at all the, 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 the archetypal photograph of, of a writer that's on the back of a book. All writers have to adopt a mask of this really strange performed solemnity. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. it's like, oh, here, here's Sally Rooney. Look how serious Sally Rooney is all the time. And it's like, I bet you Sally Rooney isn't that serious all the time. I, li- I bet you she likes to have a, a laugh at things and likes to watch shit on Netflix and eat Chinese food sometimes and do silly normal things. Mm. But if, if a writer is to be taken seriously, they have to perform solemnity. And that to me is far more absurd than me having a plastic bag on my head. At least I'm being honest about it. I'm like, I have a plastic bag on my head because... Uh, I have a large audience and I just want to go to Aldi on Saturdays and not have people talking to me. <laughs> but like, I'm not pretending that I'm, I'm perpetually serious and locked in deep thoughts all the time. And, and because of this, you must take my work seriously. Yeah. But has that kind of, um, I, I mean, I think there obviously, there is an argument definitely there to be made that kind of, there is more uh, honest seriousness in being overtly absurd if it kind mm-hmm. of points out the absurdity of norms that we all just accept. Because mm-hmm. that is something, it's kind of annoying sometimes when you see, you know, like a profile in a newspaper of an author and they're they're like standing in a field looking like, you know, I'm a disembodied yeah. intellect, I, I don't poo. Um, yeah. It's, it's so weird because that's just not how human beings are. But like how is kind of surrealism and absurdism, do you think... Uh, how, why was that what you were drawn to originally and how, how has your relationship with it changed? Well, from, you know what? The writer Flann O'Brien. Flann O'Brien is probably my favourite writer and Flann O'Brien, when I read in particular a book called The Third Policeman by Flann O'Brien, it's one of those things that make, made me really realise how important representation is in any type of media, right? Mm. Because... I'm there in Ireland as a straight white man and I'm listening to people like Bob Dylan or Tom Waits and I'm going, wow, these people are geniuses. I love their work, but it seems so inaccessible to me because they're American. Yeah. And then I open up Flann O'Brien and I'm like, this is genius, as much genius as Tom Waits or Bob Dylan but he's speaking like I speak. Oh my God, this person is Irish. They, they, they write in Hiberno-English and all of a sudden now becoming an artist seemed possible. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And Flann O'Brien showed me, you can, it, there's a way to do, there's a way to speak about things with depth and intellect and also to incorporate comedy and to do it in a really, really silly, absurd way. And that's what Flann O'Brien showed me. But also the other lesson it showed me was the importance of representation. Because like, fucking hell, what's it then like for someone who is a person of colour or someone who's gay or whatever to not have any representation at all? Not have Mm. someone like them make an art that they can go, wow, this person looks like me. They talk like me. They think like me. Their their lived experience is like mine. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So it's surrealism, like, I don't use a hell of a lot of surrealism in my podcast. I do in my books. Mm-hmm. I love, I go as surreal as humanly possible. I just, it's fu- it's an enjoyable process. Sometimes as well with me, because I have, I have a history of anxiety and I'm kind of anxiety free. But when you get a panic attack and you also have an active imagination, that can be hell. So sometimes with my work, I used to have this terrible fear of going mad, if you get me. Yeah. I used to have a fear of developing schizophrenia, being psychotic, losing control. And when you get intense anxiety, you can convince yourself that you're in that territory. You know what I mean? Yeah. I used to not think my hands were mine or I used to not know the difference between my shadow and me. And that's called derealization. And sometimes it can happen if you have mental health issues after a long period of time. And sometimes when I go very, very bizarre and surreal with my writing in particular, I'm trying to confront that part of myself. The part of myself that was terrified of being irrational or psychotic. When I bring that into my work, using humor and stuff, it's like I'm in control of it. I'm driving the, I, I'm, I'm driving the horse there, if you get me. Yeah, absolutely. That makes, that makes a load of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose it's just, it's interesting that, uh, like, you've been one of the, uh, for want of a better word, one of the kind of sanest voices in the context of Ireland when it comes to mental health. Mm-hmm. And especially, especially, I think, mental health for, for men, you know, and just yeah. talking about it. Um, because uh, there seems to be such a kind of a crisis of masculinity uh, mm-hmm. at the moment. And I, I think as a, like as a category, men don't know what they are anymore. You know, they're not sure mm-hmm. what their role is, uh, how they can be constructively involved in society, mm-hmm. um, what the relationship is with traditional masculinity. And th- like that kind of displacement is, of course, is going to have immense mental health implications. But yeah. it's quite a it's a rational response to having a sense of being displaced in the world too. In a way, I mean, what, one thing I always tried to speak about when it came to male mental health in particular is we're really only one generation removed from society expecting men to be providers. Mm. Like, when were women allowed to start working when they're married in Ireland? Was it like the 60s? I think it was the 70s or the 80s, yeah. Jesus Christ. So we have this, we still operate with rules of society that tells men um, you must earn a load of money because you need to provide, you need to find a woman and provide for her. And if you can't economically provide for her, no woman will want you. And you internalize these rules. But the fact of the matter is, no one's getting a house today unless it's a giant effort between two people like no one's going to be able to survive and live in most modern cities unless both people in a relationship are working and contributing to the the bills in the house Mm. and this is the reality but there's still at the back of our heads this idea of you must provide and you need to be in a situation where you can your income solely runs an entire house and because that's so unrealistic, you end up with lads feeling that they don't have any worth at all because they don't meet those standards. Yeah. And it's, I just say to people, look, go for intrinsic valuing. Don't you, if, for anyone, if, if your self-esteem depends upon how other people see you or how much you earn or any aspect of your behavior, if your self-esteem is dependent on that, you, you can't have self-esteem. It has to be intrinsic. Absolutely. But I mean, that's obviously that's such a simple conception and so difficult to yeah. actualize. How close do you think you are to, to that? Um, I tell you, if I didn't have a bag in my head, I'd have no, I, I'd be fucked. Because <laughs> that's one reason why I wear that bag on my head. Um, so when it comes to having an internal locus of evaluation, it's, it's daily. It's a daily thing that I have to do. So every single day I have to say to myself and the way I do it is I I don't take 
I, I, I try not to define my self-worth based on positive things. So if my podcast does well or if people give me a lot of compliments about my podcast or if I, my book sells really well, I have to be so careful that I don't take those positive things and then go, I'm class, I'm a brilliant person now because my work is being received well. Because then when it's received negatively, it hurts. It really, really hurts. So what I have to do is avoid it all. And what I do is I focus on process. So Mm -hmm. I enjoy, I I get self-worth from doing things that provide me with personal meaning. And personal meaning for me is like creating art, reading. If I'm doing these things and my self-esteem comes from the process of that, then... I'm in a pretty good place. I didn't have this bag on my head and I would be like going to a pub or whatever and people are coming up to me and going, oh, I saw you on TV. I saw this. I mm. think my, I, I'd be fucked myself. I wouldn't be able to maintain healthy self-esteem with that. There'd be far too much external validation and sometimes external chastisement that how could I possibly know who I am? And this is a thing that a lot of people in the public eye have because they say it to me whenever I interview them. They're like, you lucky bastard with that bag. Yeah. I mean, it's one reason too why like, if you look at the entertainment industry, the amount of people that are, have severe addiction issues or have died because of addiction, obviously, okay, the job gives people easier access to partying and substances, but there's that element too of people who are in the public eye live a very, very strange life where you walk into done stores and everyone knows who you are, but you don't know who they are. Yes. Yeah. And, and I don't want that. I've never, ever wanted that. That's why I wear that bag. And I, I like that. I like just being fucking nobody. I like I can do my podcast, can do whatever, then walk away from it. And I'm just fucking no one. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's obviously that's an objectively like really pressured situation to be in but I mean Mm. from my own perspective obviously I don't have any of that but one of the reasons why I left academia and there are lots of external reasons to me that were kind of more rational and based on an assessment of you know what I could contribute and what I was getting back but one of them was just that like growing up my father wasn't around and we didn't have money so my mother uh, I think she kind of bought into that traditional idea that we live in a meritocracy and if you work very hard then you can rise up and you can get out of your circumstances and whatever. So the focus was always school. It was so aggressively on academic achievement. And I managed to get into Trinity. And I remember sitting in the library in like my second year at Trinity and looking at a book and the the words were moving around the page. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like I'm, wow. I've I've lost my mind, and like we have a, a big history in my family of like quite severe mental illness. There's a lot yeah. of people with psychosis and issues like that. So I was like, oh well, I'm I'm screwed, I'm done. Um, so I took a year out and went home and worked in a bookshop for a year and kind of got myself back together. And, yeah. But it's still, and then I went back and I finished it and I did my PhD and whatever, but I, I never felt comfortably detached from that sense that my worth is tied up in an academic assessment of what I produce. So part wow. of leaving was that I couldn't, I could not get healthy on that relationship. Um, wow. So I just had to cut the tie because it wasn't, it was doing me no good at all. Which must um, have been a huge decision, like for, for someone with a, a PhD, like the amount of years you've put into that. Yeah, I mean, it was, but uh, I kind of. Any one of the things that, that I kind of learned through the process of getting a PhD, and I mean it relatively speaking, because it's very much relative to privilege and like who has the basic capacity. But if you're lucky enough and you have a support network, anyone can get a PhD. It's not, you know, it's not a. Mm-hmm. It's not a sign that you are an intensely gifted or important or hugely valuable human being. Like lots of people mm-hmm. have them who are very stupid. So mm-hmm. um, I just, it it felt like it was something I just needed to let go of. Because, you know, when you sit in something for too long and you're like, this is not a good fit, but I, I won't yeah. quit. That's where I was basically for ages. So I had to finish it to prove I could do it to myself. And then I, and then I quit. And what um, did that feel like if on an existential level? What did it feel like to make such a that huge decision? Well, it, it kind of it came at a weird time because in part, 
I, I took another year out during my PhD because my mother was diagnosed with cancer. So mm-hmm. she passed away. And then I was like, well, I have to, she wanted me to finish it so mm-hmm. much. So I had, I felt like I had to do that for mm-hmm. her. And also that's some cost fallacy, which is bullshit. Nobody should do it. You know, I put X time in, so I should finish what I started. Um, mm-hmm. And I, But the thing is, like, I love philosophy. I love, I'm so glad that I did that. But I don't love academia and I wasn't right for an academic. So um, making but, the decision felt like a combination of like having a huge chunk of my identity just ripped off and kicked out into the sea. So I had to figure out what to put build there instead and also relief, to be honest. And the thing is, too, like you don't you don't have to with all the research and work you did into philosophy, you can just take that whole journey and apply it to something new and it doesn't have to be academic. Like I, I did a master's and I genuinely thought, right, I'm going to go into academia now with this master's. Mm. And I didn't. What I did was, so I, I did my master's on, uh, in fine art, uh, critical theory, things like that. Mm-hmm. I just talk about that shit on my podcast now, but completely removed from the solemnity and of academia because I don't like that about the art world in particular I don't like um, having to use all these big words all the time and it's like I can speak about this exact same concept and I can do it in a very very accessible way in a matter of fact way and I actually don't need all these words that you'd like me to use just because it's academic and I think all this does is it frightens people absolutely why aren't aren't we democratising these concepts and ideas for sure. I think especially when it comes to something like philosophy, because it's... Yeah, um, like that's a scary PhD. Like you say, you say a PhD in philosophy, that frightens people. It's like, holy fuck, how's their head going to fit in the door? They must be so smart. <laughs> Terrifying PhD. I mean, but but it's such a it's such a life skill. I think part, part of what really pissed me off about academia is that, you know, these rooms of, of people who like arguing among themselves and feel like they have this kind of... Um, secret knowledge that will mm-hmm. be diluted if we push it out into the world and share it with people. And like I, what I always say to everyone is you're using philosophy all the time. You just mm-hmm. uh, when you make a decision or when you you know put forward any idea, but you might not be using it that well. So why not, you know, know a bit more about it, see how you can use it. And everything is philosophy. Ultimately, mm-hmm. like CBT is philosophy, all the useful, pragmatic, therapeutic tools we have to help us with like mm-hmm. mental health management and issues. It's all philosophy. Um, and the thing is, too, what you're saying there about an element of certain people wanting to gatekeep it within academia. Don't let yeah. this hidden knowledge out there. And often what I found when, when I was speaking earlier about. Um, I, I take issue with solemnity a lot. OK, mm. solemnity. Like academia is very solemn. Uh, religion is very solemn. The fucking military is incredibly solemn. Humans tend to use solemnity and rituals of solemnity to make something undefensible, undefensible appear defensible. So, and thing, it, it also humans use solemnity to make things that are fundamentally absurd seem normal. Like royalty, for instance. Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> like, my, my great, 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 great grandfather came over from France and kicked a lot of people's heads in and now today I'm entitled to swathes of land. That's utterly absurd. So the more absurd the position, the more solemnity you see. And what could be more solemn than royalty with all those rituals that they do? Similar Mm. with the military. It's like, you want me to go over to Iraq and you want me to kill people my old age for oil? That sounds a (laughs) bit mad. But it's like, no, 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 it's not mad. We have performed seriousness here. There's medals, there's ranks. And anywhere... Anywhere where a structure is completely defined by solemnity, humour is never allowed in. Humour is always very dangerous. That's why you'd never laugh in a church. You'd never laugh during mass because mass is incredibly solemn. And art galleries, the, like when most people walk into an art gallery, in particular a modern art gallery, people are really, really silent because they are terrified that the person beside them will figure out that they don't know what the art, art on the wall means. Absolutely, yeah. And a religious solemnity has found its way into the art world because the art world, it's just fucking capitalism. 
there's a painting on the world on the wall and that's 60 million. Why? Who decides that? It's <laughs> ultimately absurd. So you need to have huge amounts of solemnity and then you get this statement of intent underneath the artist's work where it's like, here's a plaster cast of someone's foot. However, they've written about it using some very big words here that I don't understand. So it really must be worth this money and it must be very, very important. And it's all solemnity. And it's what I say too to... Like, I got attacked during the week because, what was I doing? I was on Joe, they, they, did, they did a repeat of Joe Duffy's uh, Meaning of Life. And I was on talking about the meaning of life. I was talking about my attitude toward religion. I was talking about mental health. I was talking about all these, I was talking about suicide. I was talking about really serious things. But with a fucking bag in my head, a plastic bag in my head. And some people get very bothered by that. Very, very bothered. And what I say to these people is I can be very serious about something and I can care deeply about something without needing to be solemn. But people can not give a fuck about something. Politicians, for instance, while continually performing this solemnity with how they dress, how they speak, how they present things. And it's like, you actually don't give a shit about this. You don't understand it. But because you're, you have this ritual of solemn adulthood we're supposed to take it seriously yeah but i think there is as you say there's that uh there is that relationship between kind of um perceived solemnity and power that it is a yeah it's an articulation of power which is why you see it in kind of you know powerful structures and how they Mm -hmm. are how they uh engage with the world absolutely and Academia is a very solemn space, incredibly solemn. Yeah, it's it's a uh, like infuriatingly so to the point that it you know even when it doesn't need to be, even when something is funny, um, yeah, it, it 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 always feels kind of it always felt to me like an environment uh, that was evaluative, like everyone was always checking if someone else knew more, if someone else was better. Um, what their status is in the room. Like I remember once being in a very toxic. Ab- absolutely, I was in a we. Uh, I was in a like a, a a monthly gathering of philosophers where graduate students, when I was one, would get up and it was you'd just be crapping yourself for like the months up to your turn, and you'd present whatever you were working on to the room, and uh, you know senior people would come and they'd do it as like a favor or an obligation of their job. You know, it was obviously they didn't really care what like twenty year olds were mm-hmm. doing or thought. And there was one of the most prominent philosophers in Ireland who's sitting next to me, and he on or surrounded by his cabal of graduate students who'd yeah. follow him around. And I remember looking over, he was writing like bitchy little notes on a pad, you know, like teenage yeah. girls used to do when I was at school, insulting this like 20 year old kid up at the front of the room, giving his Jesus work. Jesus Christ. And I was just thinking, all right, grand. So like, because I went in with this belief that if anyone has kind of epistemic humility and a likelihood to understand what's going on, because I don't understand what's going on. Surely it's philosophers. Of all the people, they have to be above all this pettiness. And that was a few months in and I was like, oh no, (laughs) there's nowhere that this doesn't exist. Clearly I'm, I have made a weird decision here. Um, All humans are fallible and all humans are insecure. And mm. it's it's our job on a day-to-day basis. I mean, that, that person there... That's pro- that's that's probably what happens when enough people kiss your ass for fucking enough long enough time, you know. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in 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 TV, there's this thing where it's like so. If, when I if I was to work, if when I work on a TV program, there's people whose job it is to get me a cup of coffee, right? Yeah, and that's. For someone like me who is tries to mind my mental health, for I try to have humility, that's very challenging for me because I don't want another adult making me coffee. I don't want that. I'm I'm capable of making my own coffee. It's also one of the things when I was uh, addressing my mental health issues in my early twenties, a big trigger for me is I was terrified of being an adult. I was terrified of standing on my own two feet. Mm-hmm. So. Preparing my own meals, washing my own clothes, proving that I can stand on my own two feet was very important for my self-esteem. But when you're working on TV, it's like someone comes up and they're like, I'm going to get you a cup of coffee. I'm going to get you a chair. 
And at first I had to go, no, no, no. And then they go, this is my fucking job. So if I don't do it, I don't have a job. So then within, then I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. But what you have to watch is after day three, it's not, can I make you a coffee? It's me going, where's my coffee? Okay. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? And yeah. it's some. I have to keep that in my mind. I've be very mindful around that. And then I see people who work in TV and, and they're, they're gone past that. And now they're entitled. And now they're treating everyone around them like fucking shit. Yeah. Because it's a job and, and they're getting their arses kissed. And right there you go, that's the fallibility of that human. Because anyone who behaves like that is insecure. If you're, you're bossing people around and being a prick... That's not someone who's comfortable within themselves. That's someone who self-esteem now depends upon how they can dominate other people and be shitty to them. Yeah. Uh, Before we finish up, there's one last thing I wanted to ask you because I've noticed uh, that obviously with all the mental health stuff, you have a really, I think, refreshing focus, which I found relevant for my own kind of managing my, you know, sanity over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, there's kind of this narrative uh, that emotions are very deep and they're very meaningful and that when we get sort of distressed that it always has this like existential quality and that feelings are extremely valid and important and and, and loaded. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I notice I have like uh, in the afternoons, I, I'll have this sense of complete dread and uh, existential terror. And then I have a small piece of bread and it turns out I was just a bit hungry. You know, like yeah. those feelings feel so deep, but they're actually, they're quite bodily. So you do yeah. a lot of focusing on balancing physicality, you know, sleeping, eating, exercise, that stuff. So you just say a little bit about like why you do that and why it's important for you. Um, well, first off, emotional awareness. When I was nineteen, twenty, and I was getting very, very bad panic attacks and very bad depression, I didn't know what I was feeling. I didn't have a vocabulary to name my emotions. I didn't know, am I angry? Am I afraid? Um, am I worrying? I didn't have these things. Yeah. So part of my process, mainly using cognitive uh, psychology, was to correctly identify each of my emotions to understand the difference between something like anger and rage, you know, Anger mm. is like an appropriate response when you're unhappy with something. And then rage is quite toxic and it can be difficult to control and it mightn't be justified. Anger tends to be justified. Rage isn't. Rage is an internal thing. So I, I learned all these emotions. And then, and that's my emotional awareness. That's understanding. Th- these are the emotions that we get and you can have a big thing for me is that is understanding the difference between healthy and unhealthy emotions because mm. life is life is suffering bad things are going to happen that's a given that's a given of existence but most of the pain we go through on a daily basis it's it's not actually because of anything that's happening to us quite a lot of distress is or distress is when you're worrying about something that hasn't happened yet or focusing on something in the past so these are completely av- that's the avoidable suffering the unavoidable suffering is this pandemic, for instance. That's just a shit situation. Or when someone close to you dies, these are, they're, 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 it's fucking heartbreaking, but this is the suffering of human existence that you can't avoid. So what I try and do is through emotional awareness and mindfulness, keep check on, on the, the real unnecessary suffering. I used a metaphor recently that it was like, if you get, if you get stung by a nettle, or no, if, if you fucking, if you rub off a plant, and you have an allergic reaction to the plant. The plant getting on your skin is the activating event. But scratching it until it bleeds all day long is my choice. Yeah. That's, that's the suffering that I've, I am actively maintaining and I have a choice around it. So emotions are the same. I don't have control over... There's a pandemic. I don't have control over this pandemic. I don't like being stuck inside all the time. I don't like that I can't go on holidays. A bunch of shit. I can't control that, but I've got full control over my attitude towards it. I've got full control over that. And that's very liberating. So now I can avoid a shit ton of suffering that I could have created for myself. And regarding the holistic approach, like, uh, so exercise is a massive part of my mental health regime. Mm. Uh, My mental health regime is, is 
using things like CBT daily. Also, there's another one called transaction analysis that I use. Um, emotional intelligence and mindfulness when I can and I meditate. So that's one part of my mental health regime. The other part is exercise is essential. It's one I'm struggling with at the moment because the gyms are closed. Yeah. And I was running every day and then ended up injuring myself because I was running every day. So th- I'm struggling with that at the moment. Exercise is hugely important. And then something as simple as preparing my own food because a big part of my mental health comes from living my life with meaning. And meaning can be as simple as creating narrative, narratives in your day, stories. Going to the shop, picking out your groceries, making mindful choices about, I want this carrot, I want that onion. <laughs> Bringing it home, the conflict of... How will I prepare it? What am I going to do? The little bit of tension when you cook a dinner because you might burn something. And then the satiation of eating it. That's a full journey there. That's set up conflict resolution right there. <laughs> and that's, there's fantastic meaning in that. And when I find myself drifting into depression and stuff, I don't want to go to the shop and buy the food. I want to get a takeaway. And then takeaway is just satiate, satiating my hunger, but there's no narrative to it. It's hard to get meaning out of a takeaway. So I try throughout my day, how can I live as much as possible with meaning? And like a meaningless, something that's meaningless for me would be scrolling through my phone too much. You know, you get up in the morning and you fucking open up Instagram and before you know it, an hour is gone. Yep, yep. And it feels like shit. That's meaningless. But getting up, I'll tell you what I did actually to get away from that is I started making these things called overnight oats. Oh, yeah. It was the most meaningful breakfast I could think of because I'm starting it the night before. So I'm prepping it the night before and then I know that these oats are going to soak with the coconut milk and it's going to amalgamate overnight. and It's going to be lovely and cold. I've <laughs> started a journey and because of that, it gave me a reason to get up in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know and I, I mean? guess you're not half arsing anything either because you're actually paying attention to what you're doing, not worrying about tomorrow or this afternoon or yeah. thinking about 10 years ago. Yeah. So li- little bits of meaning in my day through creating stories and a story for me is anything that has set up conflict and resolution. And I'm taking a bit, a little bit of that from, uh, there's a bit of Carl Jung in there and a mm. bit of Joseph Campbell with his uh, hero's journey uh, myth stuff, you know, <laughs> but that works for me. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely sounds like uh, a much healthier way to approach your life than like autopiloting anything. Or I think yeah. getting into bad habits because you feel like this particular part of my day isn't important. It's just functional. So I'll just I'll order my dinner. I won't think about it or, you know, I'll just kind of not conscientiously take part in the minute details of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do that before you know it, a year has gone by and you hate yourself. <laughs> exactly. And I was talking to a neuroscientist recently, Dr. Sabina Brennan, and she told me an amazing thing about the human brain and why we get into unhealthy patterns. Um, like when you're in a situation and you're kind of like, why am I continually doing this fucking thing? I know it's wrong, but I keep doing it. And she said that basically because the human brain requires so many calories, it tries to automate as many things as possible. <laughs> so the brain will push, even if, if that, that, the pattern it puts you towards is something very unhealthy, like depressive thinking or thinking in an anxious way or jumping to conclusions. The brain is like, I still think that you're a caveman and you can't get 2000 calories a day. So my job here is how can we automate everything so you're using the least amount of calories? And also Sabina said, This is why so many of us are absolutely wrecked with this pandemic. Because you're going, I'm not leaving my house. I'm not going to work. I'm doing Zoom calls. But why am I twice as tired? And the reason is, is that we've had to repattern everything. Mm. So the brain's using more calories. The, The pattern of simply leaving the house, going to work. Like people drive to fucking work and they don't know they drove. They just arrive at work and forget the journey. Your brain has automated every single part of that to conserve calories. So it's an amazing way to think about the brain and to think about why why do I end up in these patterns? Because the brain finds it a hell of a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. 
as you say as well, I think the, the that kind of being aware of the the physicality of of what you're doing and what you're eating and where you're going. It's also just kind of a humbling reminder that your emotions are not revelations that come from on high yeah. and it's facts of the matter about the world outside your skin. They're just reports on what's going yeah. on internally. And sometimes it's, a good sleep will help you out or, you know, a good meal or whatever, that it's absolutely. not always, it's not always cosmic truth. Sometimes you're just hungry. <laughs> and, and sometimes emotions are just, it's, it's like a faulty fire alarm that's going off and there's no fire. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like learning Learning to not, uh, the difference between listening to my emotions and not letting my emotions dictate. Like, if I'm going through a bad spot, I wake up in the morning with that feeling of dread that you spoke about there. Mm. I'll wake up with my heart thumping, utter dread. There's no specific reason for it, but because I wake up with this dread, my brain will then try and justify why it exists and then start bringing in the words and scenarios as to why I should feel dread. And then the rest of my day is, is filled with dread. Mm. So yeah. I have to challenge it and go, maybe this emotion is just because the thing is with the morning in particular, your, your brain releases a chemical called cortisol to wake you up. But cortisol is also the chemical that really triggers emotions. So sometimes the simple act of releasing cortisol and waking up, your brain has associated that with panic. So you get a panic for no fucking reason other than your body's trying to wake up and then your brain goes, panic, there must be a reason. I wonder what it is. Let's make something up. Or yeah, or I guess find something because everyone has issues. Find something that seemed manageable yesterday and make it seem totally unmanageable today. Big time. Thanks for listening to Second Self. This podcast was edited by Billy Adamson and JJ Hadari. Music was written by Team.